Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. I'm Diana Clark, and I'm here with my co-host, Arden O'Connor. Hi, everyone. And we are both extraordinarily excited today about our guest. She is an artist. She is a musician. She is a pure heart. And she is named Katie Burden, and she is my goddaughter. So we are really, really excited to have you. Thanks, Katie, for joining us. Yeah, of course. I'm excited. I come from kind of like, you know, the AA school of like, if someone asks you to be of service in any way that might help another alcoholic or someone struggling with addiction, you say yes. So hope I can be helpful. Of course. This is Arden speaking, and we're just so happy to have you here. And I thought, you know, I know we're going to go through stories about your amazing journey with Diana, but I thought I would just ask sort of a little bit about what you do now, you know, who you are as a person. I think it's great for listeners to have context when we go backwards and tell some of the story to get there, you know, to understand who you are today. Yeah, I am living in Los Angeles. I've been there for about 12 years. I have a great group of friends. I have a beautiful community there. I mean, these are things that I, you know, were not a given for a big part of my life. I just got my BA in studio art at Cal State Long Beach and getting ready to do, to enter a grad school program in art therapy next fall in Canada. So exciting things are happening. Yeah, I'm in a good place. That is so amazing to hear you be able to say these things on a podcast, Katie, because I know your struggle started young, and I know it went for a chunk of time. How would you like to tell us about that journey and what we could learn from it? I think that I kind of noticed that there was something going on with my mental health as young as eight years old. I had these kind of obtrusive thoughts of violent things happening to me and my family. And I didn't understand, it didn't seem like other kids were having this experience. It was very strange. So I kind of developed this sort of OCD to kind of like mitigate the fear that I was experiencing. And I think that that OCD kind of morphed as I got older into an eating disorder in my teens that was pretty aggressive, really obsessed with counting calories and lost a lot of weight. And then I discovered drugs and alcohol probably my sophomore year. And I actually remember it very clearly. <laughs> I discovered, you know, Adderall actually was, was my first love with substances. And then that just kind of snowballed into multi-substance abuse. And uh, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was using every day. I thought that I had found this miraculous cure for my mental, you know, stress, my depression, you know, the hold that the kind of OCD behavior had on me. And addiction characterized my life for, you know, the majority of my 20s. And yeah, I mean, it's been a long road. Diana's gotten me into several <laughs> rehabs. 
I think I went to seven in total. And, you know, I was able to get a few years together and then I went out again. And, you know, this round, I'll have three years in, in August. And I, I definitely, like the quality of my recovery and my sobriety is, is so much deeper than it than it was the first round. And I'm grateful for that. Luckily, you know, I, I survived that last relapse. But yeah, I'm doing well. And that's thanks to a lot of components. Question, what kind of family support. You had a trust officer. You're a beneficiary of a multi-generational trust. What would and did you receive support? From my trust officer or just adults in general? Adults in general would be a great question. (laughs) You know, my dad was dealing with his own struggle with addiction and my mom, as loving and lovely as she is, she kind of lived behind this veil of denial. <laughs> More like a steel wall <laughs> of denial. <laughs> she couldn't really see what was in front of her face because it was pretty clear that I was struggling. There wasn't really any intervention from any adults. There were certainly no consequences. Never was I grounded or heard, you know, if you're loaded, you can't come to Thanksgiving or you know, we're going to take away all this free money you're getting, you know, if you don't get your act together. I mean, there were truly no like tangible consequences to my behavior and no therapeutic intervention. I was just kind of like growing like it felt like I was growing like a weed, just like wherever the sun was, you know, there weren't a lot of parameters, which I I think I, I really needed. I think that maybe, you know, I didn't really have a relationship with my trust officers. I did have one that was pretty consistent throughout my teen years. He was a nice guy, but you know, if I was spend taking out a lot of cash, you know, or he never, we never discussed it. And so I don't, you know, I think it would have been nice to have an adult that was kind of willing to see me as I really was, not how they wanted to see me, like my mother, you know, I think she always saw me how she, how she wanted to perceive me, not the reality of what was going on. So to have an adult kind of like be able to, take an objective look at what was going on and intervened in some way would have probably been a good thing. Yeah, I can see that. And, and it's an interesting, I mean, we hear this a lot from beneficiaries that, and it, I, we hear both extremes, I should say. Some people who say, I can't get away from parents who are trying to overmanage me and make me into somebody that I'm not trying to be. And then other people who report either you know, a deep sense of denial on behalf of their parents. You know, some cases there's a bit of absentee parenting that goes on. I guess my question is, if you think about your journey, Katie, were there pivotal moments or messaging that you thought if somebody intervened now or with this message, I would have been open to it? Because in many circumstances, Mm -hmm. parents or advisors or other professionals are trying to intervene. And especially for that late stage teenager, early, you know, young adult, it can feel like they're not getting through. So I'd be curious, you know, what could have been helpful in your journey? Mm. I think like I had mentioned before, like actual consequences, like you can't really, you know, you're not allowed home for Thanksgiving if you're not addressing your issues or if you're high or just boundaries, boundaries within the family relationships. And, oh man, 
I mean, I think when I had my eating disorder, I should have gotten like serious impatient help. You know, I was, I was like stuck in a prison of my, you know, and, and they, I, I did get sent to a, a dietitian, which was just ridiculous. You know, they're like, you need to eat more. And I'm like, well, I literally can't, I'm not capable of doing that, you know? So I think maybe then my teen years when my mental health was kind of manifesting and like just my body deteriorating from lack of nutrients, like that would have been a good time for me to just be able to get some therapeutic help and, and really kind of understand the nature of that illness, you know? Of course. I can remember a few pivot points for you. One would have been your teenage years during your alcohol and eating disorder. One would have been when you basically, you know, were kicked out of a dorm, if I recall correctly, in college. Mm -hmm. That would have been a pivot point. More than consequences, though, I believe there is the corollary way that families help teenagers and young adults, and that's with conversation as much as consequence. Did you have conversations with the adults in your life about your struggles? No. <laughs> you would have thought that, you know, my, my dad who like, you know, his, his addiction and his, his story with addiction like mirrored mine in, in many ways. And I, I would have thought he would want to sit down and talk to me about the genetic component of this, his own experience with addiction, which was probably kind of hard for him to grasp because he was in the middle of it. And also the, you know, the fact that it runs in our family grandparents, parents, their parents. I mean, we have a lot of alcoholism and mental health issues in our family tree. And I think it would have been helpful to understand that at an earlier age. Katie, I guess one of my questions just listening to your story is, given that there weren't a lot of boundaries and maybe not enough you know, supervision or boundary or encouragement to get into treatment, what finally motivated you to say, this is sort of enough, I'm going to put my life on a, a different track? Because it certainly sounds like you're in a much better place now. And I'd be curious, I know so many parents we work with, the question is, you know, will my loved one or my son, my daughter, whomever grow out of this? You know, what is going to be the turning point for them? And I'm curious if you had one or if it was a series of small things, because everybody's story is a little different. Yeah, it, it was a gradual unfolding. I've relapsed several times, and each time I kind of learned something about my disease. And yeah, I mean, I think it was just, a, you know, I remember one turning point was I'd been in a rehab for like a week, and I just kind of had this realization that I'd always considered myself someone that had really good intentions. And I never really considered that my, my behavior and my actions were really affecting other people. And I had this kind of like epiphany that like, <laughs> I was, I am the sum of my behavior and my behavior was awful, <laughs> you know? I actually wasn't the person that I perceived myself to be at all. I was something completely different. So that was a big realization. And then, you know, I think it just, I had to get to a point where I, I was so desperate like I got to a point where I either things were either going to change or I wasn't going to, but I wasn't going to live this way. 
you know, and, and, and maybe that didn't manifest in like a, a, a plan of suicide, but I was basically there mentally. Like, I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm physically, mentally, and psychologically exhausted, and this isn't the life I want to live. And I had to get to that point, which really took a while, you know, it took what it took, also, I guess. And, and you're in a better place for it now. I'm, I'm curious along the journey how, you know, money and wealth played into it. You know, did it, did you find that it, helped you in moments to get the help that you needed and get your life on a better trajectory? Did you find it that it in moments where you weren't doing as well, that it exacerbated the symptoms because you were able to access things more easily or able to remain in a dysfunctional pattern of behavior? I'm, I'm curious kind of what role that had in your journey. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's been a gift and a curse. I, I didn't have to get a job. You know, so many of these like landmarks for, you know, that leading you into adulthood of being able to work and know that you can support yourself financially, that like because of your hard work and perseverance, you're able to put food on the table. Like, I think these are just important things for an adult to understand, you know, and the sense of, you know, mastery over something, cap being capable. I mean, these are all things I think that come from working. So those were things I was kind of lacking. And I think after a certain point of time, I started to believe I wasn't actually capable of taking care of myself. So that's what I think living off of free money kind of did to my esteem. But you know, on the other side of the coin, like I was at one point I was hanging around with people that were just junkies and they, you know, they lived on the street or they lived in social security, you know, social sponsored housing. And, and they, I think I always had this, I knew that when I was, if I needed help, if I wanted help, I would have the resources to get it. And that wasn't the case for everybody. You know, so in, in that sense, I, when I was ready, I, I was grateful to have those resources. It sounds almost like living, not a double life, but it must have been confusing in your head to sort of be around the folks you were in and then realize that you were able to escape it at any point. I'm imagining right. that could have been a very confusing place to be. I think that I thought that maybe I was better <laughs> than the mm -hmm. people I was hanging out with for a while because I had this access to money. But you know, what I realize now is that I wasn't. I was just as worse off as they were in terms of like how deep our, our addictions were, were, you know, we were, I was not better off because you don't, even with the money, I, I um, it wasn't enough necessarily to get me sober. I guess I, I thought that I was better than these people and I realized that, that I wasn't, that we were one in the same. We were all, you know, struggling with this disease. Yeah. I have to say one thing as I'm listening to this, Katie, and that is that you did a lot of this recovery, your journey alone. There are lots of people who have many more people in their corner while they're struggling with addiction. And so I have to tell you, it makes me very sad to hear how alone you were on this journey in retrospect for you. Yeah, I've been financially independent from my parents since I was like 14 years old. <laughs> so yeah, I did kind of get the sense that I was kind of on my own, that it was up to me to, to figure out. And I had no idea what I was doing and I needed a lot of help and I wasn't an island just because I was financially independent and it, it took me a long time to understand that. 
just because you can financially take care of yourself doesn't mean that you don't need a huge community and network of support. Yes, and boundaries and parents and guardrails and all of those things as you're growing up. Yeah. Katie, if you had one piece of advice, no, let's back that up. If you had several pieces of advice for prospective parents of generational wealth who are going to be inheritors of trusts, what advice would you give them about their child rearing? Mm -hmm. I think families need to really work on, like you'd mentioned, Diana, communicating with their children. I think that, you know, in our family, everything was supposed to be dealt with sort of in-house, you know, it's kind of like the WASP code. But what that actually ended up meaning is that we didn't address any of the disturbances within the family system. We just kind of put them under the rug. And having an honest, open communication about what's going on is like, you know, it's, it's so crucial. And I know that there are kids that probably do amazing things with their trust funds and they don't have a real job and it works out just fine and they're very ambitious and confident. But for a lot of us, that's not the case. So I think it is important to put parameters around the the wealth that they're going to inherit. I think parents should make their kids get a job so that they can develop into confident, responsible adults that understand the value of money. I think living off of free money that I didn't earn was ultimately damaging to my self-esteem. And so I would say, yeah, have your kids get a job. It's a good first step. I like it. Is that before the age of five or after? (laughs) Yeah, also just to try to try to see your kids for who they are, not as who you want them to be. I mean, I don't need easier said than done, I suppose, but maybe it's important to have make sure they have other adults in their lives that might be seeing things more clearly. I think that's a really good good point. And I mean, it certainly sounds like now you have a community of people that support you and can help you if you get into a position where things aren't going as well. But I I think it is, I think for so many of our families, whether it's denial or whether it's just simply, you know, struggling with admitting that your beloved child may have differences than other children you've raised or other children in your family system. Mm -hmm. I think so many family, you know, so many parents think that they're doing well by protecting the person and not admitting that the distinction or the challenge that they're going through. And Mm. even if it was with best of intentions, it winds up creating more struggle and and to the extent you can have an objective resource and say, you know, is this behavior something you'd be concerned about if your child had it? It's just much easier to look at somebody else's child and and have a more objective attitude than be the parent who remembers the child when they were very little and have all these sort of conflicting emotions about admitting something that, that, you know, may limit their future options. I think, you know, in our family's case, that was a huge issue for my parents. They didn't want to talk about his, my brother's addiction openly because they were concerned about, you know, does that mean he's not going to be able to go to college? Does that mean he won't be able to get jobs? You know, what, what impact will that have on him? And in fact, what we found was just the exact opposite. As, As soon as we became more candid about what he was going through, you know, the people we wanted to know, there were some that we didn't and, and they had their own opinions and we sort of ignored them. But most people who we cared about, their reaction was one of sympathy. How can I be helpful? understanding and it just took a certain emotional weight off my parents from having to make up all these excuses and reasons why he wasn't present or he was behaving a little Mm. 
differently or he wasn't drinking at a certain event, if they, if they could just say, this is what we're going through, we're right. trying to address it the best way we can. My opinion is, and I'd be curious on your opinion, Katie, on this, I think it also relieves the burden from the individual who's going through this. They don't feel as ashamed because it's not like, oh, well, I know my mom knows this, but she won't talk about it, which sort of intimates, mm. I think, for many children that this is something to be ashamed of. Yeah, completely. That is the message that that sends. Yeah, I think that we'd all be very surprised if we were more open with the people in our lives about what's really going on behind closed doors. Just how much people can relate, you know, I think. Addiction is just pervasive, especially in families with wealth, you know. And yeah, the conversation needs to change. Love that. Conversation needs to begin, right? Right. So one last question from me, and then I will pass it over to Arden. Imagine that you are a trust officer and you have that position of distinction that you're going to be seeing the expenses by the beneficiaries and you notice something awry. What would your advice to the trust officer be who is probably a little worried about raising that with the family? Right. I guess for a trust officer to be kind of equipped with resources, a therapist, someone that this this kid could talk to openly and share what they're, you know, what they're going through. I, I guess perhaps that could be, you know, if, if the, I, I think trust officers, part of their job is to, to form a sort of alliance with, with their client. So to do that from the onset, you know, so that when this issue arises, they feel comfortable discussing it because there's a, a mutual trust there already established. That makes sense. So, Katie, we love to end our podcast with some things to consider. You know, what are the one or two things that you'd want our listeners to remember from your story or, or to consider as they go about their journeys and interact with people who've had situations similar to yours? I think we need to be more open about our conversations regarding mental health. I think we all know somebody that suffers from addiction, and there's a lot more support out there than we realize just in terms of shared, you know, just in terms of finding like an empathetic ear. And I think that you need to talk to your kids. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think especially if there's a, there's a history of addiction, and mental illness in the family. I mean, I think that we can start that conversation with children when they're pretty young, younger than some people might realize. I think that they're, the, the younger we start, you know, the younger they are when we start to talk to them about these things, the better off they'll be. And I think they can handle it. It's not something we need to, you know, hide. I love that. Me too. Well, thank you, Katie, so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your candor and your empathetic voice. I think it's so important for our listeners to hear these first-person accounts. Cool. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to have done it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie Bird. And thank you to all our listeners for enjoying another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.